It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Looking for a way to make online learning a better option for your family? When it comes to virtual learning, experience matters. Tuition-free K-12-powered schools are ready to put over 20 years of experience to work for you, giving your child the personalized learning they deserve without disruptions. With a K-12-powered school, students gain the skills they need to be prepared for their next steps in life, building a better future for each one of us. K-12, education for any one. Learn more at k12.com. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. My name is David Happily and I want to tell you all a little secret which you might not know. And that is that last night I thanked my lucky stars that I could be here at all to present this episode of No Popcorn, the No Encore Music and Movie Spin-Off Podcast, y'all. I heard on a podcast this little boy who was nine years old. Sometimes a host will do a podcast and ask everyone to tweet in and say they liked it. And I was on Twitter and this little nine-year-old tweeted in and the podcast had these, you know, these voices in the background, like you know, the way they, they use co-host voices these days. And the little boy tweeted in and the host replied saying, uh, how old are you, son? And the boy said, I'm nine and I think it's going to be a hit. And the host said, why? And he said, because it has those, those co-hosts on it. And, I thought that was so cute because, well, I did to do a podcast myself and I'm real fond of the Headstuff podcast. Plus, I live out in, you know, Drimna just off the, the canal there. And uh, so you can see why I kind of related to that. Uh, uh, anyway, I think uh, me and the guys are going to do a podcast for you. Uh, let's go, guys. I think uh, there's a, seems like a storm is a brewing. That's what uh, Hanrady used to say before we start this episode. I'd like to welcome the usual host of No Popcorn, Dave Hanrady. How you doing, Dave? I can't believe I've done this. How's it going? This is David Tapley hosting the episode, everybody. I am so happy. I'm delighted. It was Yay! wonderful. Welcome to the show. Lots of applause. Uh, let's let's give the background here. I, uh, it was your birthday last year, I, I, and I, I gave you the, the ultimate gift, the one everyone wants. I gave you a coupon with... This entitles the bearer to host one episode of No Popcorn or No Encore in 2021. Yep. You've cashed in your money in the bank briefcase. David Tapley of Town and Felix is hosting this show. And yeah, 
So I'm going to try and I'm, I'm going to try and back away now. So I'm going to sit off the mic. You can introduce the rest of the people, and I'll just I'll just zip this mouth closed. Well, this has been a while in the pipeline. I've been uh, a big fan of this movie, so thank you very much for uh, allowing me to cash in my uh, cash in the bank. I guess is that what it's called, the briefcase thing in wrestling? Money in the bank briefcase. Money in the bank. Sorry, I'm yeah showing myself up as being a noob here. Um, but yes, I'm uh, delighted to be talking this film, and alongside the two of us, Dave is Norma Howard. Hello, howdy. How are you getting on, Norma? I'm good. I'm very excited. I'm. I like. Strangely enough, there's four of us on the screen, and there are technically four Davids that we're looking up at. As I'm under the name W. Droney currently, so that's strange. Yeah, this won't but, get confusing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We've got yeah. a Higgs. We've got a Tapley. Why doesn't Dave go by Hanrity? I'm Easter Sunday because we're recording this on Easter <laughs> Sunday. I can change it if you want to. No, Higgs, what do you think? I think you should keep Easter Sunday. I, I like your, your themes, names. Um, that so voice I, you just heard was David Higgins. Uh, I didn't give him an introduction and I'm not going to let him skip away without getting one. How are you doing, Higgs? I'm very well. Um, I'm, I'm very interested about this coupon. I, I knew Dave told you you could present an episode, but did he actually give you a briefcase? And when you opened it, it had a coupon within? Uh, I think it was a... You gave me a book of the David Squires uh, comics... David Squire is the cartoonist for the the Guardian who does all the football comics, and I believe it was inside the the front cover. Uh, now I will also have to point out that it did say uh, to host an episode of Now Encore, so it's debatable whether this coupon, coupon is fully used up. So oh, here um, we go. This is this is the Seinfeld episode with Jerry Banya and the soup and the lunch or whatever it is all over again. Fine, you can host an episode of Now Encore as well before the calendar year is out. I'm good with that. You've heard but, it here uh, first. And because oh, I'm ed- legally because, binding, yes. And because I'm editing this podcast, I there's no way that will ever not make the edit. So, yes, thank you very much for confirming <laughs> that I'll be back on. He's to, complete uh, artistic yeah. control here. I've got final cut on this one, as I do for well most of the episodes, I guess. Like the um, Snyder cut. The Snyder cut, and that leads us into, I guess, the the first and usual opening segment of these podcasts. And that is the Andretti uh, is applauding my clunky segue. <laughs> Incredible transition, nailed it. I loved it. Yeah, it Norma, Norma threw I the Norma so threw well. the ball up, and you just dunked it. Yeah. <laughs> teed it up for me there. Um, and I guess we'll begin with you, Norma. What have you been watching over the past um, while? So, funnily enough, I had watched the Zack Snyder's Justice League, the Snyder Cut, as it's called. I think there's a specific name for the just Joss Whedon one. They call it like the... The dog shit cut. <laughs> I was going to say, I think they call it the Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, yeah, because two other people have watched it as well. So I don't know whether we should go into... Uh, we should all talk about it now or separately give our opinions. Um, it is four hours long, just to prep for anyone who is going to watch it. I'm sure you've heard about it's length but um I thought it was fine to be honest like it is no better nor worse than any other superhero film it it is super long I broke it up into kind of two hour chunks took a bit of a break came back to it it definitely would have benefited from just being like a mini series but it actually like the grade on it is really nice some of the directorial choices are really good some of the performances are quite good I never like I've never seen the Joss Whedon cut like I said so I don't I didn't have that to directly compare it to I don't think I will ever watch it just from the sound like from what I've heard it just sounds 
horrific. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you've got four spare hours going, then yeah, give it a watch. Like it goes like each character of the Justice League gets a, a significant amount of screen time and backstory and setup and everything like that. Like their characters seem very fully realized. I think like I think they spent something like 30 million on more reshoots when they were like, we're going to release the Snyder Cut. There's a lot of like there's some bad CGI in there. There's some bad like uh, cinematography work at times. Um, there's a lot of cheesiness in it, like a lot of superhero films. But like it is definitely a million times better than what I had prepped myself for. So I was nicely surprised by a lot of it, to be honest. Um, D- Dave and I had an interesting experience of uh, of the Snyder Cut. Like this, this is a movie that, were it not for our, you know, our current lockdown settings, we certainly would have watched together. If it had got a, a theatrical release, we would have gone to see it on a Tuesday. Like this is, you know, it's kind of built for our our brand of um, expensive trash, and so you know without being able to to watch it together we did the nearest thing possible which was a, a simul a simulcast of hitting play at the same time and uh did she you actually know, oh wow yeah, yeah. I, I think very I, I think cute I, I had to work i had to work on the work the early shift so i was like i finished work at 2 p.m i'm pressing play at 201 <laughs> so <laughs> we jumped straight into it you're either with me or against me <laughs> exactly yeah. i was very hyped i was like this sounds perfect i think i was a couple minutes ahead of you though so i was kind of warning you about stuff without saying it. like i think i just said at one point i was like beware a needle drop i was just like jaw dropping needle drop coming <laughs> and then <laughs> you got it yeah so um yeah it's it's clearly an improvement on the um the joss whedon version which is incoherent nonsense it's it's really terrible like it, you know every, the, the the most bandied around term about it is that it is a frankenstein of a movie in that you know, most of it was Snyder's footage, but then they just tried to like staple on this kind of um, freewheeling, everyone's a wisecracking sensibility that completely jars with what was actually in the movie and what's come before it in the other movies. Um, I was really enjoying the first era of it. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of how Zack Snyder approaches his film, but he does have a style and he sticks to it and it is coherent, even if it's not very good. And the first hour... I think maybe buttressed by the needle drops. Like he's the most on the nose person when it comes to dropping something in. Like there's a there's a scene uh, with Aquaman like saving a sailor from a boat as the strains of There is a Kingdom <laughs> by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from the album The Boatman's Call, if you weren't getting it, uh, plays, you know, there's a, is there's another two Nick Cave songs. I think there is. Yeah, we we get Distant Sky. <laughs> that was the first one where I was like, and at first you don't notice it because uh, I can't think of the name of the the female singer on that song. And I was like, is this? Oh, it is. And again, like the 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 lyrics of the song just completely tying a nice neat little bow on exactly what you're seeing on the screen. Thank you very much, Mr. Snyder. Can I just say, though, in contrast, and I don't know if this was just in the trailer, but in the Joss Whedon version, the sequence of Aquaman saving the sailor and then walking down a pier slugging a bottle of whiskey was set to fucking icky thump by the white stripes. So I don't know which is better. And I think for, uh, yeah, as for 
like, I don't think any of us are we're, we're absolutely clamoring for this thing. And I think there's a bigger conversation to be had about rewarding a toxic fan base and the, the precedent that's been set here in the name of content and money and trying to get a streaming service like HBO Max work. However, you know, I signed up for a free trial to, like, Now TV, so, haha, I, 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 I gained <laughs> the system. But it's fine. I felt, I, felt, I felt good for Ray Fisher in particular, who plays Cyborg, because you can see how heartbroken he must have been to be completely almost cut out entirely of just as the Joss Whedon version. And obviously he's raised serious accusations about Joss Whedon's behavior, which have kind of mushroomed into bigger ones. Um, But ultimately, you know, I don't think he's necessarily the best actor in the world. It's certainly not the best character of all time, but he's the heart of the movie. There's a lot more of him here and he carries it well. And it was the only time I I kind of felt connected to anything really. Um, Yeah, I guess ultimately it's fine that it's out there. It's a curio. The ending is completely insane. I will say as well that like for all of Zack Snyder's... um, you know, kind of machismo and kind of uh, perhaps juvenile sensibilities at times. I find it hard to dislike him, um, particularly because I read an interview that Vanity Fair did ahead of this. And in it, like, I mean, everyone knows it's been talked about the dedication of this film at the end of it. It says for Autumn, which is the name of his daughter who unfortunately took her own life. And that led to him leaving the project initially. And that's been a whole thing. And this has been a, a way of him being able to kind of come back and finish his his grand design and also dedicate it to, to her memory. And in fairness to him, like in the film, there's a couple of moments where like there's been like, you know, some billboards have been added in where it's like, you know, awareness and numbers you can call if you're, you know, like an American who's needs to speak to someone. So like that, those little details are in there and you're like, in the fact that they're in this bizarre, stupid cosmic comic book movie, I can't help but just be like, well, that's some heart and that's important. But in that interview, I mean, like I read it and I came away from it and I was like, look, you know, I can't, you know, I can't go against this because it clearly means a lot on that level despite how silly everything on the screen is. So, in a way, I'm glad it got done. I don't need any more of it, though. But luckily, he's going to have a a two-and-a-half-hour zombie heist movie coming out on Netflix next month, so we got that to look forward to. Hey, Higgs, another cinema trip that we could have had but won't. I know. And, yeah, I'll just echo what you said. Like, that that Vanity Fair piece was some of the greatest promo. I think that's what kind of got me weirdly hyped for a movie that I, you know, I haven't liked any of the other ones, but, like, it was a great kind of... um, redemption arc for Snyder not that he did anything wrong or he like he had a great fall like he just he had to step away to be with his family and um you know his producing partner is his partner in life as well so you know it obviously was devastating for them in the production but yeah you do it is very hard to dislike him like by all accounts he's a really good dude the one day I worked with him on the set of Watchmen there was no he was he wasn't a tyrant on set you know he everyone seemed happy you know, so I can only speak to that. Um, yeah, and the cut, fact that, he cut you out of the film, though. So I know you, know. you didn't make the Snyder cut of that cut from the cut. I'm actively campaigning now for release the Higgs cut of Watchmen. I want a four and a half hour version of that. Um, so hopefully, I'll get that trending on Twitter. Very nice. I I'll, um, well, I, I'll belt ahead on the other films that I watched, and I'll I'll move quickly because we've got probably a lot to get through. So I watched Minari, which is like um, heavily nominated at the Oscars. Um, it's available now on Volta. I think it was shown as part of Diff, but it's kind of tricky at the moment. A lot of the Oscar nominated films, if they're not on Netflix, they're actually really hard to access in Ireland at the moment. But uh, luckily, Minari is up there and out there. I was a little bit underwhelmed by it. I was really, really prepped for it to be like best film of the year. There'd been so much talk around it. I really like Stephen Young. Um, It's produced by Brad Pitt's company. I think that's Plan B. Uh, I was really, really excited about it. Um, 
friend friend of the show Brendan Canty had given it a scathing review on Letterboxd so I think that hyped me more to watch it and yeah I actually just I feel very middle of the road about it it's strange I like it looks very beautiful the cast is gorgeous I don't think it's actually saying a lot it moves incredibly slowly and like throughout the entire film I had this constant sense of fear that something really bad was going to happen like it's essentially just a family drama set um in sort of 60s 70s of this um a family who moved out to um a farm and they're just like working really really hard to get this farm going and you're just watching these crops fail and it was just like really really like almost stressful at times and I just wasn't prepared for it and I don't feel like by the end of the film I felt very satisfied in anything so yeah I don't know I was slightly disappointed by it I guess I felt very uh, by the end yeah it's a strange one in terms of it's it's hard to know actually what the film is saying because it's kind of this weird work will set you free thing you know what I mean it's like the but the it will mo- also destroy you yeah the, <laughs> like, not, not not really like you find solace in I don't I mean spoiler free zone here I guess but like or a spoiler-filled zone, should I say? But it's it's one of these things that, like, you you would kind of expect maybe the, the the beautiful message should be to you know walk away from that and be with your family and that's the true beauty of life or whatever. But it does seem like it's actually sort of saying like no no break your break your back just that little bit more. I don't know. It's just a strange, weird neoliberal yeah, sort of message. It I think focuses <laughs> in on a lot of different things. Like there's the idea of kind of like the American dream, and then there's like. There's also this, like, there's um, intense problems in their marriage. There's problems with the family. There's a young boy who's quite sick. And then a grandmother comes to stay with them. And I just felt like there was so much that they were trying to make this complete picture. But it actually just filled it with too many things to try to care about. That mm-hmm. I kind of felt by the end, I wasn't sure that I cared about any of it. Um, I don't want to give away too much because I feel like it's a film that a lot of people will watch. Um, including me and at Higgs, some point so. yeah <laughs> so I'll I'll leave that kind of more vague so that like yeah it's also nominated for an absolute ton of Oscars and I do really like Stephen Young so if he did win best actor it certainly wouldn't bother me on any level because he's great but if you want to watch a film with him in it that I think is excellent watch Burning <laughs> it's an incredible film uh, so if you like him check that out so something else I've been watching, I watched this actually only two days ago and I'm still hating it. So I think it's worth talking about. I care a lot. It is up on Netflix, I believe, or Amazon Prime. No, Netflix, I'm pretty sure. Uh, starring Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage. It is an absolute piece of shit. I could not. I like don't watch it. If if you're thinking about watching it, just don't bother. Just watch something else for two hours. It's. Um, a complete injustice towards like Rosamund Pike's acting ability and Peter Dinklage's as well. It looks horrible. The story is really, really upsetting. N- not well handled. It's so Rosamund Pike basically plays a con woman who um has sort of grafted her way into being a state issued guardian for. 
elderly people. So if they've like no family or no one who can look after them, she takes control of their affairs and um, like issued by a court and she cares for them as they go into like um, a home or a care facility. And then basically what she does is she finds really, really rich people, um, dissolves all their assets, takes all their money and then just throws them into care facilities and doesn't give a shit about them. So a lot of it is kind of based around the idea of like bringing attention to the abuse of the elderly and the abuse of guardianships in general, which is a really interesting topic, which is why this film is so annoying, because that is something that I think happens quite a lot and is something that when handled well would be a really interesting subject matter for a film. But it's just done so badly. Like they they bring in the Russian mafia into it to try, uh, I don't know, to make it more interesting and into like a thriller when it's like it's not really the basis, a good basis for a thriller. Um, It's the film at some point, I think, has major plot holes. Um, It's so cheesy. It looks horrible. I, I think Rosamund Pike was nominated for a Golden globe for it which I was amazed by because while she's a very good actress she is not good in this the script is so awful I don't understand why they would even bother nominating her she was nominated under like best actress in a comedy or musical film it is neither of those things so I don't know why she would they would even bother to give her a nomination other than to just try and redeem her career a little bit because I also don't know why she chose the project when she seems in the last couple of years since Gone Girl has kind of tried to veer into different roles rather than being just like the pretty blonde girl who shows up in things, I guess. Um, and it's just really bad treatment of the subject matter. Um, I think it it is a guy who wrote it and directed it. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it's like he's trying also to have a feminist agenda to it. But in it just makes women come across as absolute assholes. Like the only way that you could be feminist is to be the world's greatest dickhead. And it just did not sit well with me at all. Don't watch the film. <laughs> and if you I do watch it, don't talk to me about it. Because <laughs> it actually <laughs> just by the end of it, I was so angry. And I was like, what a waste of money of a film. Um, and then to round it all off, I watched Jason Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have the Moby music playing as that is said. So insert extreme ways people <laughs> drop here. Yes, don't worry, guys. I got it. I had watched. I'd watched the first three films. So, born identity, supremacy, and then ultimatum. I haven't watched the Jeremy Renner one. I may get around to it, but I decided instead I would skip it and go straight for Jason Bourne, which is the return of Matt Damon to the franchise. And then I think it is the definite ending of the franchise. Right? I'd say they're done. Like, yeah, I'd done. be surprised. I mean, um, you know, like that guy can't run that fast for, like, for yeah. the rest of his life. He doesn't ease a break. <laughs> he like literally by the end of the film, I was like, Matt Damon is fucking wrecked. <laughs> like, from all the fighting that he's doing with Vincent Castle, like insane um do you know what a good a good good crack of a film for two hours um it doesn't it's nothing groundbreaking but like it was certainly very entertaining and yeah something to kind of switch off and just watch him run around for two hours happy very nice i've seen so like i think i've seen one of the born movies and it's 
not the first one. So I hope it's, <laughs> I hope it's the Renner version that it's, like you're yeah. just solely. It it's Aaron Cross. It's not the. It's the the Cross legacy. I I've also it, only recently discovered there is a TV show called Treadstone, which is based off the franchise as well, which I assume is terrible. I'd be surprised if they're even still making it. Um, right. Will I jump in? Shall I? Dave Hanratty, what have you been? Sorry, this is this is poor hosting <laughs> on my part. <laughs> I didn't set up a good link there. Should I have like, I don't know. Don't worry, Norma. Segue? I'll edit in a good <laughs> link. It's downright rude of me to, to hijack you, Tappy. I'm sorry. Um, I'll blast through mine. So yeah, Justice League, we talked about that. Um, I got rent a backdraft, which of course was previously talked about on this show. It is a ridiculous film. Now, in fairness, uh, like it's it's bad, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's watchable as hell as well. And it's like, you know, Jason Bourne as well. It's a two-star movie, two and a half-star movie for me. But like, you can totally watch it, popcorn, whatever there needs to be like i mean we've talked about this we've kind of teased this i think we need to have some degree of like films that aren't spectacular but are extremely watchable and you can just throw them on and i would throw into that category although i do think it's better than a two two and a half for sure would be state of play starring uh matt damon's friend ben affleck and russell crowe as i mean how is he not eddie vetter like appearance wise in this movie late career uh, state of play is based on a bbc miniseries and this was like the kevin mcdonald directed 2008 it's about like Russell Crowe is a schlubby journalist and Ben Affleck is his congressman, you know, college mate who's now embroiled in a scandal. There's murders and all that kind of stuff. I mean, like it's it's just extremely workmanlike and solid, but very satisfying and pleasing in that way. It's got a great cast. You know, you got Rachel McAdams in there as like the the young blogger journalist. This is when like, you know, like Russell Crowe's got like a big old computer and like stacks of papers all over his desk and, you know, mustard on his shirt. And like, then you've got like Rachel McAdams is like this sassy young blog person because blogs were the thing in 2008. Can they, can they work together and crack the case? Yeah, of course they can. That's what the film is. Uh, Jeff Daniels, once again, in very much in Will McAvoy prep mode. Uh, Helen Mirren as the editor of the uh, uh, like of, of the online paper and the paper itself. Uh, Jason Bateman pops up as like a coked out weirdo at one stage. Um, it's just kind of like you, like this film has Viola Davis as a morgue attendant who gets like four lines of dialogue and is never seen again. So it's just an embarrassment of riches in this fairly pedestrian but very 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 watchable story. And you know it ends with um like a Creedence Clearwater revival song playing over credits of a newspaper being made. And I'm like oh just hook it to my fucking veins. Like I mean it's just so watchable and just like. Like, yeah, stakeless, but in all the right ways and just good enough. Uh, on a similar note, Shattered Glass. I revisited that recently. This is, uh, if if anyone wants to know if Hayden Christensen of Anakin Skywalker fame has ever put in a good performance in a film, he has in the film Shattered Glass, which is about uh, a journalist who, it turned out, was fabricating all of his stories. It's a true story. Um, and the kind of exposure of that. You got like Peter Sarsgaard, Chloe Sevignes in this movie as well. Uh, good, you know, nothing special, like kind of just like a good hour 40 minutes, good procedural, very worth watching. Um, the Celebration, I got around to, Thomas Vinterberg's The Celebration, which I'd never seen before. It's on Mubi. Uh, I still haven't seen another round yet. I'm considering revisiting The Hunt. But man, this guy makes films that are really out to test you. Isn't that the case? The Celebration is like... It's Dogma 95, so it looks like absolute garbage. Like, it's filmed on what appears to be handheld cameras, and there's constant zoom-ins. It's grainy as all hell. Um, But, my God, it's about um, a father's 60th birthday, and the family come together, and, like, the eldest son makes a speech. And from there, it just becomes the darkest of comedy. 
it's really really upsetting but it's clearly done in an incredibly arch satirical way it's an excellent film but not for the faint of heart and finally um a film i'd actually never seen before that i just kind of watched on a whim and i was surprised i'd never seen it before from you know uh summertime for, for humanity 1999 uh bringing out the dead directed by martin scorsese and starring nicholas cage as a very burnt out paramedic who is driving around the streets in new york on an endless kind of 48 hour shift and he encounters different people all of whom are in great distress he has a kind of a revolving door of uh partners on these nights and he has like john goodman ving rames who completely steals the film with an incredible performance and tom sizemore and it's really gritty it's really like dark and dank and quite nasty at times but i thought it had something to say and i thought it said it very well i thought it was very very compelling and even just martin scorsese as like the the dispatch operator and i actually watched quiz show recently and martin scorsese pops up in an acting role there as well i always enjoy when he pops up he's fun but uh you've seen bringing out the dead higgs haven't you i haven't actually um i think last year i made like a list of my scorsese blind spots to get to and it still remains on that list so i probably will get to it pretty soon um if I can get to what I was, you, you mentioned Backdraft and you were like that two out of five, um, incredibly watchable. Um, I've been kind of, I think I mentioned before, each month I'm trying to do a different thing, uh, a different kind of uh, watch list themed. So March, for some reason, I decided it was going to be courtroom dramas. I think off the back of, I watched Philadelphia for the first time in, in at some stage in January. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, really good courtroom drama. So I was like, go and watch some more. Uh, so my 90s uh, installment is Primal Fear, which is exquisite garbage. Is <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's kind of famous for being, uh, you know, Edward Norton's big breakout performance. But again, like when you were, I, I'd forgotten about State of Play, when you were like listing off the cast, I think something about these incredibly watchable, not very good movies is just the embarrassment of riches that they have. And um, Primal Fear is absolutely that, along with Norton, with you know Richard Gere, Laura Linney, John Mahoney, a post-Oscar-winning Francis McDormand, just in like a very very small role. Uh, Moira Tierney, Alfred Woodard, Terry O'Quinn, Locke of uh, of Lost fame, and then Andre Brower and Steve Bauer. It's just like absolutely stacked. Even if you're kind of like losing interest in it, someone interesting will pop up, and you're like, oh, that person. Um, so that was part of uh sustained my uh my courtroom drama also in that i have uh watched anatomy of a murder for the first time um which is otto preminger's uh movie from the late 50s or early 60s i think late 50s jimmy stewart versus george c scott in a courtroom drama it's like incredibly methodical in how they basically go from exactly how a court case starts to how it ends uh really really entertaining stuff lots of stuff in it that hasn't aged well particularly around sexual politics but was kind of to be expected um also watched the verdict um this is sydney lumet's 82 movie with paul newman um paul newman is like this down and out lawyer drunk who basically kind of gets given like an easy an easy case from uh from one of his friends it's kind of like you know just take this and here's basically 70 grand you're just going to do a settlement but his conscience gets the better of him and he decides to take on like the church the biggest law firm um you know the healthcare system itself um yeah again really really entertaining 
um, Paul Newman versus James Mason in a courtroom. So, you know, two titans going up against each other, which I guess leads me to not a courtroom drama, but <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong or Kong versus Godzilla, which is uh, recently released. This is the fourth installment of Warner Brothers Monsterverse after Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters <laughs> and Kong Skull Island, I wasn't Island, aware that that's I what it was called. Yep. Um, <laughs> Disbelief so. and disdain on Norma's wow there was outstanding. I loved it. <laughs> the Monsterverse. It's up there with the Dark so Universe mean, as like a non-starter <laughs> franchise. Yeah, but they keep fucking doing it. Yeah, so I think... I think you and I, I think uh, King of the Monsters was a was a Tuesday night trash event it for was, yeah. for us. Yeah, they, these movies, the trailers are always remarkable and they always seem like they're going to be so much fun. And then they're all so like so serious when when it comes around to it, apart from like some fleeting moments where they kind of realize what this movie actually should be. So you, you get like again like very watchable stars like this one has Alexander Sarsgaard, um, Rebecca Hall, Millie Bobby Brown's back from the previous one, Kyle Chandler, Brian Tyree Henry, like a great cast just slumming it. All of them not really realizing what kind of movie this should be, except for Damien Bashir, who is, you know, having a kaiju sized piece of ham for the whole thing. <laughs> He's wonderful. Um, yeah, it just like these all descend into like CGI goop. I don't know what attracts directors to making them. The directors that do make them seem to be the kind of most mediocre white directors that Hollywood can just like spit up and just be like, you made a half decent indie. Here's $200 million to make whatever. There so are a can I just of say real quick I, what a disappointment Adam Wingard has turned out to be after your next and the guest which I really like in particular the guest his next three films have been uh, Blair Witch Death, Death Note, Note and now this. this and I'm like yeah. oh, I'm done good night so anyway yeah very very forgettable um, a weird kids movie like I think I don't know if I talked about Kong Skull Island before but like the, the the violence of King Kong, like you know, he's tearing off. There's one one scene where like he gets into a fight with some thing, I'm not sure what it is, and like tears its head off and basically like slurps its brains out of uh <laughs> its its head. <laughs> um, is this like the Peter Jackson? No, this is this is uh, the, this one. Yeah, so just ridiculously oh, violent. Um, there are one or two moments where the movie really understands what it is, and they are absolutely exquisite. There's a there is a fight between Godzilla uh, and Kong in the middle of the ocean. And Kong is like, uh, they're fighting on top of an aircraft carrier. There's a slow motion of Kong, I think it's in the trailer, punching uh, Godzilla, which is just exquisite. And then Godzilla goes into the water and like whatever does his atomic breath or whatever. And Kong's like, oh shit. And in like, like John McClane jumping off the top of Nakatomi Plaza, you have King Kong jumping off an aircraft carrier as it explodes. And it's like, that's the movie. It should have been this. Um, I think. I think. I think that's all I've been watching. <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong. Whoever wins, we win. Um, I. That's. That sounds exactly up my street. But yeah, I think in in the in the very extreme, must be seen in the picture house sort of movie. I commend you for sitting down in your own house, Higgs, and watching a film of that magnitude because. I would not waste my time with something like that, but maybe that's uh, why I'm so depressed all the time. But anyway, um, moving on to what I've been watching. So I am 
like completely showing up or being shown up here by people who are legitimate journalists and uh, film review people. I I'm just going to ramble through what I uh, have been watching over the past while that I've liked or have been recommended by you guys to watch, and I will now give you my live uh, teardown of of what you have told me to watch. So. One of the first things that I watched in, or the most important things I think I've watched in the last while, which I've been thinking of a lot, was Sunset Boulevard. Um, Billy Wilder film, I think. Everyone here has possibly seen it, and if not, do at your nearest convenience. Um, just one of those films that, when you see it, you realise how so many other films have borrowed from it, or owe to it, or it's just such a, like a tent pole in in cinema history uh and i've been kind of trying to think of those films or what's what are the kind of most referenced or most sort of landmark sort of pictures um especially in sort of things that i like i know i'm trying to talking about lists on letterbox and all that sort of stuff i'm trying to come up with a kind of good definitive list of films that have sort of meta narrative uh or sort of like um yeah, that's sort of like Brechtian. You can see the kind of construction of the film within the film itself. I kind of like that in art in general. So uh, any recommendations, please send them on uh, to the people I'm speaking to right now on this Zoom call or on Twitter if anyone has any good um, films like that. It's 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 hard to sort of look for these things. But Sunset Boulevard, I think, is, is definitely one of the most important films in this sort of uh, genre or style of filmmaking. Uh, as well as The Player by Robert Altman, which I also watched in the past while, so I've been watching a lot of Robert Altman films, um, because I realised when I was gifted the opportunity to present this episode, and I had been saying for years that it was my favourite film, which I think it is, Nashville that is, um, it is the only Robert Altman film I had seen until <laughs> at this point, and I just assumed I had seen other ones. I'd always He's a said, liar. He's a cheat. Get him off the podcast. Always said, Altman, oh, what a legend. Like, such a great filmmaker. I had seen one film of his. Now, a film I did and do still love. Um, but I had nothing else to sort of uh, frame this reference of, of, of where it sort of fit in his career. Is it his best? Is there other ones that are similar? What is What of this sort of... I, I had known that he was kind of famous for... Na- um, ensemble casts and all that sort of stuff but uh, having watched more Robert Altman it's not it's not actually sort of a defining thing about him he does do smaller films or does films with fewer actors anyway um, like The Long Goodbye or Three Women where there are literally three women in it um, and what else did I see of, of his that I appreciate yeah like I say watch The Player The Player is probably the most similar to Nashville in that it's got the sort of long long opening scene it's got the introduction to pretty much every one of the massive ensemble crew in in uh in sort of this this one introduction and uh yeah fantastic film i think that was a recommendation from you dave h you had sorry dave h-a-n uh you um i think have defined it you said this film is kind of like a defining five-star movie uh in terms of the sort of what it what a five-star movie is oh yeah 100 percent. yeah i think it's uh an absolute classic and I, I i think it's it holds up incredibly well i think it shines a great lot in hollywood even today uh you're a fan higgs i think i i watched the yeah, air there recently i i think it's really good but it's a little bit too proud of itself and yeah, i probably. actually just just watched sunset boulevard again the other night and kind of was you know the two of them were kind of playing around in my head and 
yeah, I I like how Billy Wilder kind of scares Hollywood while very, very much within the system of like the 50s back when like it was a, you know, the big five were powerhouses and he was working within the parameters of, I think he was MGM um, and the way he talks about it and um, yeah. But player, still very good. Um, I'm very disappointed with you, Tappy, because you've, you've been on an Altman bonanza, as you say, in the running order, but you didn't watch Popeye, which I did, because I am a professional. <laughs> well, I did. When I saw that you had watched it, I said, thank you, so now I don't have to watch this. But um, yeah, go on. What, what did you think of it? It's So I think before we, we talked about like Dick Tracy, and I was like, that has got to be the benchmark for the most insane um, studio movie that primarily seems to be made for children. Just because it's like how it looks, uh, the kind of the nightmarishness of the the prosthetics and like how heavily sexualized it is. And then Robert Altman's Popeye comes along in 1981. Uh, he made this with Robin Williams, uh, Shelley Duvall, frequent collaborator, collaborator is Olive Oil. It just seems like an absolutely insane production. Um, they filmed it in Malta and... They built like a proper sea shanty town on the side of a rock in Malta that's still there. And, oh you know, it's 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 now like this weird... Like the Millennium of, Falcon in the Skelligs. <laughs> yeah, it's like this weird theme park in Malta that you can go to. And it's like really like, you know, fervent Altman fans go, is, is that a thing? But anyway, it was like, it was a Disney movie. Um, yeah, it just seems like I was watching it and I was like, oh, this is they ran out of money basically like they had to be like disney were like come back and altman was like no i'm not leaving malta and you know it was the 80s cocaine was rampant like everything (laughs) everything about it i just kept thinking of like you know the studio executive being like oh well we sent altman and robin williams to to malta with like no other producers no checks and balances what (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then they came back with this movie and then you know that brass eye it was like it was the last thing we expected to happen it was was just playing in my head yeah i knew it was going to be weird i didn't know it was a musical um so harry nielsen wrote all the songs for it they're utterly terrible um it's also like while being a popeye movie you know I, i kind of know popeye from the cartoons but Popeye was based on a comic and Popeye came into the comic like, you know, a couple of years into the run. So like Altman was like adapting like the very first thing before Popeye came along. So it's all these town folk that inhabit um, Sea Haven, I think it is. Just a really, really, really strange, absolutely insane movie. There's a there's a an octopus fight at the end that is essentially you can tell they ran out of money because it's not an animatronic. It's just a plastic octopus that uh, Robin Williams punches underwater. Absolutely bonkers film. Uh, utterly terrible, though. Brilliant. No, it. I think every every filmmaker needs a couple of uh, yeah, like coke fueled sort of <laughs> nightmare uh, movies in their in their uh, catalog. And uh, I'm glad that you watched that for me, Dave. So yeah, I don't have to. But. Who knows? I did see a friend of mine also watched it the other day and gave it four stars on Letterboxd. So divisive. Um, in other film fun, I watched Jackie Brown um, for the first time and definitely, definitely not the last. I'm prepared to watch it actually again this month uh, because I could not stop thinking about it. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen, like myself, it is uh, Quentin Tarantino's... Um, 
I don't know what where it comes in the in the oeuvre, but it's one of his films. And as I think you said, Dave, it's his best. Dave Higgins said it's it's his best, and it's not even close. Um, it's got the most heart of any film of his I've seen. The music is savage. The performances are so good. It's still kind of creepy, and he's a pervert, and we know this. So let's just accept that. And it's of course it's going to be Tarantino uh, doing his thing. Um, when will that ever change? But uh, for some reason, it's it's over over that's overshadowed by, I think a a beautiful film that really made me feel so happy, and um, yeah, uh, it it will be something I'll be watching again very very soon. I think. Can I suggest a companion piece to it? Yes. Now there's the obvious one, which is uh, out of sight because um, Michael like... Keaton plays the same character in both movies. But um, it is now April. My my list for this month is uh, PT April. I'm going through all the Paul Thomas Anderson movies. So I started with Hard Eight, and Hard Eight is a really kind of good kind of companion piece. Like it's around the same time. Um, you get a, a good, great Samuel L. Jackson performance in it. Um, there's always kind of a lot of overlap just between PTA and Tarantino. But again, like the way that Tarantino went and cast uh, like Robert Foster and what he does with him in that movie, uh, PTA does with Philip Baker Hall as Sydney in Hard Eight. So another one for you to, to, to visit, perhaps. Yeah, and Robert Forster in that movie is just adorable. I cannot get over how much... When he drives Samuel L. Jackson back to the house, and he says, "You uh, so you like the Delphonics?" and he goes, "They're pretty good." It, how much my heart just grew in size after seeing that! He's got the most empathetic face in all of cinema, and uh, yeah, I I wish he was my father. Um, I also watched him in Mulholland Drive uh, a few nights ago um, on that Sunset Boulevard buzz, on that self-referential buzz. Um, and yes, that film is incredible. Can always do with more Forster, but um, yeah, just another uh, Dave, brilliant David Lynch film. Uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm all about that Lynch. Um, but anyone else who knows me, this is clunky enough for your hand ready, knows that I'm all about Nashville, <laughs> our film for today. Perfect. Happy birthday to me. Exquisite so years old. And uh, yes. The trailer for I'm tr- actually trying to make this sound clunkier than it is. I'm 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 better than this. I've got more show me <laughs> um, wonderful metatextual stuff going on here. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> well, I get to edit this. So He's going to be editing it. I'm going to do like, weird and wonderful things. <laughs> um, He's going to put in audio afterwards that we haven't even heard yet. So. Yeah, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna when when you think I'm throwing to a Roddy Blakely song, I'm actually just going to cut to my own cover of one of her tracks. Um, but let's have a listen to the trailer, shall we? And it sounds a little bit like this. Nashville is about a lot of things and a lot of people. See all 24 of them and the outrageous things they do in Robert Altman's Nashville. <laughs> Robert Altman's Nashville. For movie lovers. The damnedest thing you ever saw. Turn over to you, David Higgins. What is Nashville about? Well, it's about a lot of things, uh, David. (laughs) Uh, Nashville is uh, Robert Altman's 1975 movie. It is a sprawling epic set in uh, Nashville, Tennessee that follows the lives and 
interweaves and intersects with people uh, in the lead up to, um, you know, it's a, the bicentennial of, of America. Um, there is a political candidate who is in town and is trying to use lots of the, uh, the musicians kind of to, to boost his stock. And it's a very kind of, you know, kind of meandering, kind of a hangout movie. Um, Altman came to it, basically, uh, the movie he made, I think before this, Thieves Like Us, um, which has Keith Carradine and Shelley Duvall, who are in this, um, also written by Joan Tewksbury, who wrote Nashville. He wanted to make it. He was at United Artists, and they were like, yeah, we don't really know if we want to do this. Um, we have We have an idea for this Nashville movie. I think they just bought a publishing company of, like, uh, country and western songs and they're like we want to do this um this movie with like tom jones so they sent uh altman the script he had a look at it was like no nah, this isn't it so he got joan tewksbury basically just to go to nashville and to sample it and she went a couple of times i think like the first time she basically had like a minder who was like bringing her around all the sites that you'll see in this movie like the grand old opry the the parthenon uh, a lot of the recording studios um she went back on her own then and kind of, yeah, just like took the temperature of it, wrote a script. They brought it back to the studio and the studio were like, absolutely not. Uh, we won't be doing this. And so Altman um, kind of took it to another studio, ABC, who are kind of like this, um, this uh, you know, this kind of nascent studio. Um, so they went and they made it. It was like very kind of uh, low budget which kind of afforded Altman to kind of do what he wants. Uh, he bring back a lot of his kind of his regular players that he has. Um, and yeah, it kind of, you know, the, 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 there's a script there, but from what you'd hear from the actors and what you'd hear from Altman himself and uh, Tewksbury, it's very much improvised. Like, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, but like the night before they started shooting, they apparently had like this big barbecue and Altman was just basically like, take your scripts and throw them in that fire, <laughs> which is like, like Brian Clough. I'm sure if you're, I'm sure if you're a John Tewksbury, you're like, thanks, uh, Robert. But you know, she she knew his style. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of went on. It didn't do too well when it came out, and kind of made have justified what you know United Artists were trying to say. But it was uh, critically revered. Pauline Kael absolutely loved it. She got to see like essentially like an assembly cut of it. And reviewed it and kind of, as a result, strong-armed the studio into kind of letting Altman do what he wanted. Uh, it went on to be nominated for multiple Oscars in maybe the greatest year of uh, five, in 1975. The, the, the five pictures that were up for Best Movie are absolutely ridiculous. Maybe we'll come to them later. And has since gone on to essentially be considered his best work and one of the greatest American films ever made. Yes, um, I, I the the detail of Tewksbury going to Nashville after or during the production of Thieves Like Us is very interesting because on the day that she arrived there, there was a a car crash slash a sort of pile up traffic jam, and I think just the instant that happened, she's like, "That's perfect. That that will be how we'll introduce the characters to the audience. We'll have this big melting pot of of these characters all stuck on highway." whatever um there was she had she'd gone back a couple of times i think literally just like the geraldine chaplin character kind of walking around uh but with a piece of paper 
or a, a notebook just kind of writing down things she saw so the first time she went it was a very curated very heavily sort of um welcome to nashville and um, they brought her to these museums and they brought her to where the, the big bible printing uh factory i guess and it was all very for show and i think she sort of kind of went back to altman with this information he's like nope no good we need to we need to get under the skin we need to see you know we don't want the the tourism board of nashville to 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 dictate dictate how this film's made you need to you know go where you're not welcome you need to see what these people are really like and i think she essentially uses this geraldine chaplin's character opal as a kind of a surrogate for what her experiences were like she i believe un you know invited herself into recording studios and was sitting down writing until she was asked to leave she would go up and talk to people on the street she um said herself that she looked like Cher at the time she had like long like straight as dye hair like halfway down her back and that was just like not uh congruous with the Nashville style at the time which I guess was a bit more sort of um I don't know American looking or something and uh I, th- I think she kind of stood out like a sore thumb being this woman who grew up in South California in the 1940s or whatever um so she quickly kind of learned that by kind of putting herself in these situations that that's where kind of most of the film came from i believe every kind of scene in this movie maybe except for the final scene i guess has some element of truth or some element of uh, an experience that she had lived while doing kind of research uh, i guess during the production of thieves like us but uh, it's kind of it's an interesting way of making a movie it was kind of if these things didn't happen to her in real life in the sort of chaotic realism of of her daily life this film would have been totally different so it's not it's not over manicured it's just this sort of beautiful natural film that uh i think you can kind of tell that there's something a bit more real than if it was like heavily plot driven and if uh if each set piece was sort of um over curated or whatever yeah and the way you were saying like her her reception when she was walking around Nashville and how she looked and she would have looked like a very kind of California style is very much kind of echoed in like essentially the first scene I don't know if it it actually happened to her where you have uh Haven Hamilton who is one of the the main characters I guess in this who's like the the big you know maybe the 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 number two country star in Nashville who considers himself the one he kind of almost considers himself in kind of like a a statesman of Nashville like he's the welcoming party he's the kind of one everyone goes to um wonderfully played by Henry Gibson but you have a scene where they're in a recording studio and he's getting like really pissy with uh frog with everyone (laughs) with frog and he he tells he tells frog to cut his hair and it's like that's probably kind of something that Tewksbury probably experienced Mm -hmm. um one thing we didn't I suppose mention is obviously like um this is music themes it's about Nashville it's that all the cast uh sing their own songs in it but in what is quite rare and unique they all wrote their own songs as well so every single person in this uh if they're singing a song it's something that they wrote apart from like a couple of exceptions yeah, very ably done as well. Uh, Keith Carradine won uh, the Oscar for Best Song, I guess, for um, the song I'm Easy, uh, which sounds a little bit like this. It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me When it's a love you won't be needing, you're not free Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing 
If you won't take the things you make me want to give I never care too much for games And this one's driving me insane You're not half as brief to wonder as you claim But I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Give the word I'll play your games Oh, that's how it ought to be Because I'm um, that was I'm Easy, uh, beautiful. One of uh, many beautiful songs. I guess maybe is this a point to talk about the the songs in this? I'll I'll, I'll throw it over to you. Uh, I'll throw it over to you, Norma. What did you think? Uh, um, of generally of the music in this film. Yeah, I and maybe also generally of country music in general. I'm a kind of this is why I picked this movie is because that's kind of my wheelhouse. But be interested to see what you guys kind of yeah, like I like a lot of country music, but I wouldn't be extremely knowledgeable knowledgeable about it. Um, and just like I guess I only like surface level know that the like how difficult it is in Nashville to decide you want to be a country singer. Because <laughs> obviously it's just that like the place is teeming with people who want to be involved in country music. And I think what the film highlights as well is that there's a hierarchy to country music singers and like the idolization of people as well. Um, I loved the music in the film. I, I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. Even the, I can't remember, who did the score work? It's just, sorry, just gone completely out of my head. Jerry Wexler? Or, or not Jerry Wexler. What's his name? Richard um, Baskin. Baskin, sorry. Yes. Wexler, so. Sorry. So I was like furiously Googling <laughs> the name. Who is who is also the, the man who plays Frog? Yeah. Oh, Needs no a haircut. Way. Nice. Yeah, because Robert Altman seems to love getting like little cameos and little funny little bits into it like that. We'll come back to that, I think, at a later point because there's fairly substantial cameo cameos at certain points but um yeah I really enjoyed the music to the point where I like as soon as the credits um were going I was like I need to find out those songs and then to discover that like his big mandate for the film was that if you're going to be in it and you're going to be singing in it and it's not even pre-recorded singing it's all recorded live as they were doing it during filming that you had to have written the stuff yourself as well is amazing fact about a film like I yeah. was I couldn't believe it to the point where I I was like I need to I need to find out more about this I need to actually know if this is real or whether this is just like people they actually just wrote a couple of songs but like Ronnie Blakely who I think was actually cast in it very late because um, originally there was a different actress that was attached to the project who had to drop out of it and she was brought in which is fascinating because I also just feel like she looks really iconic in the film I was mentioning to Hannity earlier earlier that even just like her costuming and everything just really intensely reminds me of Lana Del Rey like there's a shot of Lana Del Rey with enormous hair and this sort of bows in it and a white dress that is more or less exactly how Ronnie Blakely looks at one point playing Barbara Jean in the film and I was like so this is where Lana Del Rey is getting all the mm-hmm. shit from well they, they, um, Barbara Jean apparently according to Ronnie Blakely is based is, on someone is based on Loretta she... Lynn uh, who was a country singer and also I think was in movies um, Coal Miner's Daughter and stuff like that is that Loretta Lynn yeah. um, I think I think a lot of the characters are based on actual because sure. obviously Joan Tewksbury did a lot of research on that level yeah. Um, I think the individual actors sort of brought, you know, 
like it's clear Connie White has some sort of Dolly Parton like America's Sweetheart character to her the Henry Gibson character is supposed to be the sort of like you're saying the elder statesman so he's kind of like uh, George Jones or Porter Wagner or something um, you've got Tommy Brown is supposed to be Charlie Pride kind of the, the one black country musician surrounded by like you know everyone else in this industry is white and this kind of there's the aspect of the kind of Uncle Tomming or whatever given give, uh uh, the aspersion casted him by um the in, in in the in the club or whatever by the guy who works in the airport restaurant can't think of what that character's name is now um but yeah so i think i don't know if these oh, were wade is it wade is it wade Fire. i think it's there's wade, a lot yeah. of characters in this movie it's there's, easy. yeah, yeah there's like these... 20 main character casts which is also like what I found so interesting about the music as well is that considering um, Robert Altman brought together a cast of people and requested that they all write their own music, there is a um, a level of like cohesiveness to the music in itself. Like all the songs work so well together yeah. that like I think it's a testament to how well Robert Altman works with actors that he was able to get all the performances out of them that he wanted as well as getting them to all write their own songs, but still making it feel like it's all actually from this one place in this one time. And all these characters are like converging in on each other in this particular way. It's um, it's just so fascinating. And I know a lot of actors speak really highly of Robert Altman in general anyway, and how he works with them, which probably comes from kind of the improvisational stuff as well, that they can all kind of get a good understanding of place and time. So it like works massively to the benefit of the film. Yeah, let's take a listen to another one of the songs, is Keep It Going, by uh, Henry Gibson's character... What was his character's name again? Haven Hamilton. Haven Hamilton. <laughs> well, if you strike a thorn of rose, keep it going. And if it hails or if it snows, keep it going. Ain't no use to sit and whine, cause the fish ain't on your line. Bait your hook and keep it dry. Keep it going. When the weather kills your crop, keep it going. Why it takes work to reach the top, keep it going. Well, now, Weldon's gone. Come on, Weldon. Let's hear it for Weldon. Let's hear it for Weldon. Um, I think one of the things that I really like about the music in this, aside from it just being really catchy, really fun, beautiful representation of country music, is that it has this, and maybe this is something I'd be interested to hear the other opinions on this, but it does have a perfect level of comedy in it that the songs are hilarious, but you wouldn't, you know, it, it still feels like the characters within the film of Nashville think these are serious songs or something. And, you know, it. I, I wonder what, what maybe, Dave Hanratty, what do you think about this? Is that, are these songs mocking the fine people of Nashville, the fine people of the country music industry? Uh, are they playful? Are they funny? Do you think they're funny? And, um, yeah, what, what, what do you think about this? I think playful is a good word. I mean, look, I to kind of echo what Norma was saying as well when it comes to my palette of music, you know, country is not my my number one. It's not what I would go to really. And like it's I, even like a film like Inside Llewyn Davis, like that kind of folk style as well. I don't it's not that I don't like it. I'm just not educated enough. You should so do a podcast about that film. 
Probably should, yeah, and get you back on for it. Oh, wait, hang on. It's already done. Beautiful. Like, seamless linkage. Like, perfect host. I love it. But, I mean, like, the thing is, you know, um, with this and with, like, the question you've asked me about, like, do I think that these songs are making a, a particularly kind of interesting satirical point, I don't think I'm educated enough to answer that question in terms of my knowledge of this kind of music, this kind of time, Nashville itself. Even, like, music from this time, even some films from this time, I mean, I tend to gravitate, like my music, I tend to gravitate towards stuff of a more modern style, which isn't to say that I don't love films like The Godfather or whatever, but, like, you know, I'm I'm kind of set in my ways, my modern ways. That said, though, um, yeah, I, I, my, I, I very much enjoyed the music in this film, um, and overall, I thought it was one of the most chaotic experiences I've, I've ever had watching a movie. And like, I know we're going to probably get to this at some point later on, but like Higgs asked me to not put up my star rating on Letterboxd um, and he's going to try and guess it on this show. I'm still not even sure, just kind of living with it in the hours which, which, in, in which I've seen it. Because I watched it yesterday of recording, so it even, hasn't even been 24 hours and it's very much bouncing around my brain. I mean, the opening half an hour is, again, just pure chaos and it's done so, so well. I can't believe Altman was able to keep all this thing together. I think when it comes to the idea of like criticism or like, you know, lampooning, uh, the character of Opal, the journalist from the BBC, is perhaps the most scathing portrayal of journalism I've ever seen. She is the worst person. Uh, her character is just a train wreck and beautifully done, wonderfully played. But my God, every single... She's just doing everything wrong at all times. She's so selfish and awful and just offensive and terrible and just... There's lots of bad journalists out there and it's a pretty good portrayal of that. Uh, I think it's interesting that you use the, the the term journalist for Opal because there are some kind of things, you know, that are referenced in it, that the fact that she is basically one with L.A. Jones, she's not a journalist. She kind of comes in and she's basically just kind of hanging around and she wants to be near people, you know, near stars. And she says she works for the BBC and she's like, the British Broadcasting Company. And it's like, that's not what the BBC stands for. <laughs> and she's always talking about, oh, where's my cameraman? She doesn't have a cameraman. She's just walking around with a tape deck trying to be close to celebrities, um, which is really clever. And I think uh, Geraldine Chaplin is absolutely incredible in this film. And there's lots of her her experiences in it. Um, she is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin. Um, they said that they they kind of Altman was I think it was maybe uh, for thieves like us they were at Cannes and they kind of saw how you know particularly like the foreign I guess like a kind of a foreign press your Golden Globes uh, Hollywood foreign press would like gravitate towards her because she is you know the daughter of one of the greatest film stars ever and the way they kind of acted around her and they just wanted to be close to her and Altman was basically like just be that that is you know your your character you just want to be in the in the orbit of famous people you're pretty empty and the stuff that she does like she's you know we think we'll, we'll touch on it later like she's absolutely abhorrent person but um is so watchable in what she does and you know she says incredibly um stupid things uh you know, she has a lot of opinions about a lot of uh, important themes and a lot of them are really, really bad. Um, racist, vaguely, um, on yeah, quite yeah, a few va occasions. Va vaguely, vaguely racist. But just to touch on the, um, the, the the topic of songs and like, are these songs mocking? Some are, some aren't. I think Haven is, while being like probably a realistic portrayal of someone, I'm not sure who, because again, like, like Han, I'm kind of, it's not a world I know a huge amount about. 
But I do think like, um, you know, Keep Her Going is kind of like, it's almost like a commercial song, like like for, you know, an ad. Um, and then like, like big something. Big Canyonero vibes. Of it. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have something like. Uh, kind of reminds me of the film Minari, to be honest, because <laughs> it takes work to reach the top. Keep Her Going. It does have that sort of, yeah, American dream, if that's, you know. All the kids were watching uh, Easy Rider around this time, you know what I mean? They're all driving those those bikes low to the ground. So it does kind of come in that period of post-Vietnam paranoia. America, the kind of the centennial was, the, the, sorry, the bicentennial was one of these events that, you know, as, as, as Frank Zappa has said, they've been preparing for this for 100 years and they're not going to stop selling it to you for, for the whole year. So you just have to, <laughs> you got to watch yourself around those salesmen. And I guess... Um, Henry Gibson's character is one of the finest salesmen in the land and that's why he's being approached by uh, Michael Murphy's character again I know the actor's names not the character's names um, to run for governor and you know he's holding his cards close to his chest during this conversation but he, you can tell that it, he's he's been waiting for this invitation his his whole life maybe but uh, I think there's yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that sort of way of looking at his character as being a kind of a pastiche of the the old guard in america who aren't kind of willing to let the new your your uh your tom tom mary and again i can't remember the names of the people bill? in the film tom mary and bill, bill. Tom, mary it's and certainly bill. bill mary and tom it's peter paul it's peter paul and mary like but uh but that's you know <laughs> so good. There's, there's you you've got that conf, conf, conflict or whatever yeah coming between i the old and the new. i was just gonna say on like a roundup of the question of the songs and whether the humor plays on the right side of things. There's actually a really gorgeous quote from Geraldine Chaplin talking about Robert Altman and working with him and just saying that like she actually finds Robert Altman's humor quite like Charlie Chaplin's, which is obviously a massive honor in that she was like, he just has a really good taste in humor and that you just have to in order to make something funny, you just have to take it so seriously. It's like you're not playing humorous you're not playing funny and then it will always come across the right way and I think that is what works for the entirety of this film not even just the music itself is that um everything and every character every song every note song is just taken so seriously and that's why it works so well and that's why it doesn't grate on you in any way or come across as like mocking I think because these characters are living that life in that world and are so dedicated to what they're doing, even when they just seem so utterly ridiculous, like Jeff Goldblum, who plays like tricycle the character, man. Tricycle man, is I remember the name that of the character. <laughs> he just shows up in like this big, huge, like they reference it, like Easy Rider. Is it Easy Rider that they? Yeah, they Bike. Easy Rider, yeah. Ridiculous costume. I think he has maybe three lines. Um, he has no lines. He doesn't speak. No lines. Does he, no does he lines, say anything yeah. at all? I thought he, he said just something. Just does magic point. tricks and. <laughs> Just magic tricks and he's just there and it's just so interesting that he would even be added in as a character because it's obviously just like again I feel like the overall picture that Robert Altman's trying to create is just like this is just a collage of uh, an America that he sees and he wants to include all the different light dark greys everything that culminates to create it um because even at the end of the film there's just particular there's like shots to a crowd and then there's just shots of the american flag and like that could come across as really pointed and a bit like oh okay i get it but i don't feel like it does because it's just exceptionally well handled in what 
he's trying to display a sort of like this is America type thing. Yeah, I think he does something very similar with the opening scene of the player where they have that famous sort of eight and a half minute uh, unbroken shot that um, they reference the... Touch of evil. Touch of evil. They're like, they did this, you know, long shot and touch of evil. And, you know, the person who responds to it is sort of negative about it. So I think I think that Robert Altman has said about comedy in his own work is that he first and foremost needs to make fun of himself, which I don't know if I believe. I do think there is some very scathing uh, anti-American sort of sentiment in this film, which is it's very easy to sort of to, to, to kind of find uh, an aspect of, of American life and especially such a proud uh, city as as is Nashville based around its sort of its music and its type of people or whatever um, and just sort of pick that apart. I think his skill in that regard is that this isn't old man shouts at cloud because pretty much everyone of any kind of gender, age, social class or whatever in this film is shown to kind of be fairly out for themselves and duplicitous or you know whatever like i mean these characters are you know like like it's 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 very very strong work to be able to have all of these characters crashing into each other at all times and and keep track of them and also they all kind of stand out and that's a combination of how it's put together the writing the improvisation and great performances great faces on like on display um i mean it's interesting because like i think anyone who you know goes into this film going in blind is not a bad idea i think but also you should probably be aware that like there's not really much of a plot to speak of it's just all of these characters crashing into each other like a big pinball machine um and there's moments of horror like i mean there's one character in particular who is a waitress who wants to be a country star and she's not very good at singing and she gets exploited and ends up in a scene that was like like something out of eyes wide shut it was like a really really gross sequence it was i I found it actually very very tough to watch but i felt like that was the point i felt like that was like the entire point and it was like every man in this room who's braying at this woman is gross and this is an element that exists and she's an innocent and this is like the music industry and you know i mean i don't know how that scene went down i don't know if people thought maybe it was too much it's it's a lot but it i feel like again with everything in this film even jeff goldman's character is like some kind of weird framing device it does feel like every single thing is a cog in a machine and it is making a point and yeah it's it's a it's a very overwhelming experience but it's definitely one that i think is absolutely scathing at times yeah for sure i want to kind of pick up on a point there um maybe that norm was making before but um i think we've kind of touched on so many different things like the number of different characters in this movie but maybe norma i'll ask this question to you as being someone who works within film uh, uh i just wanted to kind of think talk or maybe think through the the kind of filmmaking techniques in this movie are sort of unlike a lot of others you've got this um i guess a kind of a buzzword often used with this is overlapping dialogue it's kind of a thing you you hear about often when you read about this i think they had some a track audio recorder that they would use seven of the tracks to power seven microphones so they could record multiple conversations happening at the same time i think even the scripts had three columns of dialogue that would be contemporaneous it wouldn't be kind of sequential it would actually be multiple things happening at the same time um but i just wanted to get kind of your opinion on what did you think of the sort of the way this film is actually made as a kind of a constructed produced piece of of art more than more than actually uh 
a kind of a, a, a film, a talkie, if you will. Yeah, it's tricky because it's it feels like like overlapping dialogue is something that's like now um, synonymous with Robert Altman and like people like even I remember when Uncut Gems came out and people were talking about how like it's it, Uncut Gems feels really manic and there's like all these people are talking over each other and like, oh, yeah, it's just so Altman and like this kind of thing. And it, now it's like a cool thing. Um, whereas I would, I feel like at the time it feels uncinematic to do because it's like actors should be given space and you should be able to hear each line and pick up on it. But I think that's the absolute beauty of Robert Altman and of National spe- Nashville specifically. What is so gorgeous about it is that it is a, mu- a movie just so full of sound. It is just like bursting with sounds like the sounds of like song of conversation of cars there's like between the car pileup and then later on in the film they go to like a nascar racing event yeah and there's like yeah and then like barbara harris's character is trying to get her big moment that she can sing and you can't hear her sing because the cars are so loud and it's just like there's just this constant cacophony of things happening and it's um yeah like i said it feels sort of like you're trained to think that that will detract from the drama or something Mm. or detract from how much you get to know characters. But if anything, I think it just actually creates more realism and a bit more naturalism that there's just screaming and shouting and so many different things happening and that kind of chaotic thing. Now, I think in like modern cinema would be thought of as like, naturalism and something that's like more interesting to watch so it is it is interesting now that it's like more people are trying to emulate that kind of thing as it is the film also looks absolutely beautiful um throughout it it's just it's interesting to watch the colors that are chosen in it the costumes are absolutely gorgeous in it as well um even the fact that they have barbara Jean, barbara Jean come out in these like beautiful white costumes and then connie white who's like her secret arch nemesis comes out in this stunning red dress <laughs> that is like something off an old hollywood red carpet type thing is absolutely gorgeous um so yeah i don't know if that helps answer your question that's just how i feel about it. well one of the i i, I do love your description of sound in the film i think i mean it's a nashville is a city of music and this movie is definitely a city or a film of of sound and, and music so uh i i think one of one of the interesting filmmaking techniques in this that uh is yeah not not something that you frequently see or hear in other films is the kind of omnipotent truck the hal philip walker uh kind of disembodied voice spouting its um sort of political rhetoric this populist sort of do you want uh do you want lawyers in the the white house they want to they want to change the national anthem all this sort of stuff let's have a little listen to that maybe shall we fellow taxpayers and stockholders in america on the first tuesday in november we have to make some vital decisions about our management let me go directly to the point i'm for doing some replacing I've discussed the replacement party with people all over this country, and I'm often confronted with the statement, I don't want to get mixed up in politics, or I'm tired of politics, or I'm not interested. Almost as often someone says, I can't do anything about it anyway. 
let me point out two things. Number one, all of us are deeply involved with politics, whether we know it or not, and whether we like it or not. And number two, we can do something about it. When you pay more for an automobile than it cost Columbus to make his first voyage to America, that's politics. So the truck there, one of the many characters in Robert Altman's film Nashville. Uh, I think this might be a good point that we maybe go through some of the characters. Um, Big Dave Hanratty, what do we think here? You said you have um, some favourites to talk about, maybe some of your least favourites or some of the... Who do you love to love? Who do you love to hate? Well, you said there was a moment that we had a, we, we had a quick break there because I think we're aware that this is like a Shaggy Dog episode for a Shaggy Dog kind of movie. Like, it makes sense, you know, to be a bit sprawling and meandering. And we all took a quick break, you know, got refreshments and everything. And I think you said off mic, you said something like, um, is there a moral center of this film? Like, does such a thing exist? And I said, I've got a good answer for you. And my answer for you is Elliot Gould playing himself when he pops up in the film for approximately four minutes as the coolest man on planet Earth, right? I mean, this is just... And I'm going to need some background here, and I figure you and Higgs, or both, um, will have the answer, because I think Norm and I were discussing this before that we hit record. Elliot Gould, to a lot of audiences, is probably known as, like, the dad from Friends, right? So, you know, this kind of goofy... And also, the Ocean's, uh, the Ocean's Eleven movies as well. So, like, he's, like, an elder statesman, I guess, a bit of a comedy guy. But, you know, we've seen The Long Goodbye. We know that this guy is cool, right? He had a big 70s, I guess. Like, just how big of a star? And, like, is he a good choice to encapsulate the modern star as he does in this movie? Which I believe him being in here was kind of an accident anyway. Yeah, like, much like Julie Christie pops up um, and kind of feeding into, like, how Altman liked to improv. He was basically just like, we're out here in Nashville recording a movie why don't you drop by and hang out for a bit? Like, it seemed like a fun set to be on anyway. Like, um, you know, in the evenings when they'd watch dailies, Altman would, would invite everyone to watch them and there'd be like food and drink and drugs. And it's just like, we'll have this, we'll watch the dailies, we'll have a bit of fun. So, of course, if you're Elliot Gould, you're like, yeah, I'll not buy to, to Nashville. But yeah, like he he kind of had a run. Um, his calling card would have been Altman's first one, uh, MASH, and he kind of rose with that. Gets to play Philip Marlowe, like one of the great characters in literary history and is just absolutely remarkable as it. Um, and then, yeah, moves on with Altman, does California Split. So, like, at the time, like, he is just, yeah, and a kind of an, an epitome of cool at that time, um, particularly off the back of playing Marlowe, I think. And so, Dave Hanratty, you think that Elliot Gould is your moral centre of the film, the man who turns up, does nothing and leaves? <laughs> I think so, yeah. It kind of gets in, gets out. Is there a moral centre of this film? Is it that kind of film? I, like, I kind of feel like all these characters are, in a way, villainous, no? Is there anyone here who's nice? I mean, Scott Glenn, maybe? Scott Glenn is maybe a bit creepy, though, isn't he? You know, he's just, like, hanging around hospitals and, like, watching uh, a woman who he does not know, who has... What's what's his rationale for it? Like, because he also has a pretty. His mother saved her from a fire, allegedly. From yeah, with he, their alleged, allegedly. <laughs> home burning down. So yeah, he decides to you know literally kind of straight back from Vietnam, uh, arrives in the plane and just heads straight to Nashville. In okay, his, okay, uh, we'll scratch crazed PTSD afflicted stalker off okay. the list. I one do. down, twenty three right, to right, go. Right. Next, yeah. so I I have my well. my my one pick. Tom's cool. Um, He's kind of nice, right? 
So, so in one of the scenes with uh, Scott Glenn as, as as Private Glenn Kelly, he's like talking about how I think he's telling the story about how his mother saved uh, Barbara Jean. As the wonderful will break your heart, Mister Green has just been told that his wife has died, and he's like trying to listen to this. Uh, it's such a remarkable scene, and it's like um, Keenan Wynn is is the actor is devastating in it. Like he is just a decent person who wants to, you know, look after his wife who's dying. He's trying to like cajole and get his 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 niece, L.A. Joan, uh, Shelley Duvall's character, to, like, care about the fact that her aunt is dying. You know, she skips out on the funeral. Um, yeah, I think he's, like, the most decent person in this whole thing. Yes, but he also inadvertently provides room and board to a killer, so... Mm, so we got to scratch him off there if inadvertently he's... <laughs> unfortunately, the, the destruction of the whole American dream. So we've got 22 characters left. Who do we think? Um, Norma, do you have anyone in particular you... <laughs> I feel like earlier when we were on like a little break after we played I'm Easy, which is ironic that uh, Tom's character has a song called I'm Easy because that is seemingly exactly what he is. Um, What's funny because the lyrics I of that like song, Tom. the lyrics of that song are the exact way. So he, I guess the narrator of that song is singing to a woman who he's begging her not to lead him on. Don't lead me astray. Just be honest with me. Because as soon as you're honest with me and we can fall in love, it's going to be plain sailing. And literally, that is, like, exactly how he fucks over four women in this film. Like, Oh, just... my God. And then all four women converge at one bar and all assume he's there for them it's to such quickly a good discover. Piece. It's incredible. His character is actually... is is enjoyable throughout the film even though he's like the OG um, fuck, fuck boy is like, yeah. such a fuck boy is, yeah. is 1975 like, awful Keith terrible soft boy is, is 1975 Keith Carradine sexy enough to pull this off yes should it, should yeah. it have been Elliot Gould oh my god yeah. are you like kidding Petty. me there's a bit where he's lying in bed and I'm like ah, you would ruin your life for him I love you I love you I love you and he's just asleep oh my god, it's so funny like, I know it is actually it is quite it is quite sad and it's also like it's a fascinating scene when he gets up to sing I'm Easy and then it cuts back to the room and it just it like closes in on each individual woman's face as their hearts are beating, breaking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> beating and breaking. Um, and it's a really weird thing because it feels like it should be set up to be funny, but it's actually it is kind of. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> like, it is gas. Yeah. But in another way, you're also like, oh, this is kind of sad. And like, in fairness to Tom throughout the film, because like everyone else is putting on a version of themselves for people or, you know, acting a certain way or doing the thing that they think is right. And he's like, you know what? I'm just here to get sex and have a good time. Sing some songs. We just uh, we were talking about Get like sex. Sorry, that's not a phrase. <laughs> it is now. I got the sex last night. I got the sex. Um, I caught it. I successfully acquired. <laughs> okay, go on. One sex, please. <laughs> so yeah, just, we, 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 we we were talking about um, are these songs jokes? And I'm easy is like a beautiful, beautiful song. But like, I think the way. I don't know, did um, did Keith Carradine write this song not knowing who the Tom character was? 
And then Altman was like, well, let me tell you something about your piece of shit character. Like, <laughs> I think he's, you know, the idea of Tom or, or who he represents is the most scathing in the entire movie. You have this guy who arrives into Nashville and he's part of this successful folk trio. And he's like, I oh, know I want to go out and do my own thing. I want to go and, you know, tell my own line. I'm going to be an individual artist. I don't compromise. And then you have this guy who is whatever about him sleeping around with everyone. He seems to exclusively want to have sex to his own songs. Like he's the most narcissistic person yeah, in the that's world. That's fucked up, right? I mean, so it's like, so that, that really, when it really cuts to me. him and Linnea and I'm easy is playing and you're like, do, at what point was he like, will we listen to it again? So you have him, you have him do that, which is like, okay, this guy, you know, I, I was watching the, uh, you know, very slow paced uh, director's commentary with Altman. You know, I think he was well into his 70s at the time. He wasn't coming with the energy, say, of, you know, when he was making Popeye. But he was kind of talking about how he's just like, yeah, Tom, he's a really, really sick person. And the final kind of thing about him, about, you know, he he has this idea of himself, but he's still a shill to the political candidate. He's still standing there on the stage, you know, to get like a little bit of fame. He's willing to sell out basically and campaign for some weird populist uh, non-running candidate who wants to abolish the national anthem. Is is Barbara Jean the moral centre? Is she the victim here? Is she the big tragedy? I mean, so we're seen... scratching off Tom there, by the way. So that we've Tom got 20, is 21 out. characters left. Tom bad. Bad Tom. Tom, Tom bad. Hashtag Tom bad. Um, yeah, is Barbara, like, Barbara Jean to me strikes me as like this very well-meaning, innocent, per, uh, perhaps like painfully naive, fra- frail and fragile. And spoilers, the film does not end well for her in particular. So Let's have, uh, before we get into a Barbara Jean discussion, because I feel like it might be a little longer one, let's have a listen to her beautiful voice and her beautiful song that she wrote herself it's for this movie. That you don't love me when you say you do, baby. It hurts so bad, it gets me down. Now, I don't want to step on poor Barbara Jean's wonderful white dress, but real quick, simply because Tapley launched into a beautiful accompaniment there when we were listening to the song on this Zoom call we have. You're, like Tana Felix, you're not a covers guy. I would never think this, but surely you've played one of these songs live, have you? I mean, I, I just can't imagine you never playing one of these tracks for people for a room, even if it was a private event. I don't think I've ever performed this song live. I sing it all the time at home. And uh, while we're not a covers act, I did release a 30 song covers album for my birthday last year. Uh, and one of the songs on that said album is this track uh, by Ronnie Blakely. Um, beautiful, get, beautiful. Get songs. on that band camp, everybody! <laughs> plug, 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 plug. Uh, yeah, such a beautiful song, such a beautiful singer. Her work, uh, she she's she's worked with the likes of Leonard Cohen. She's actually on the cover of a Leonard Cohen album, "Death with Ladies Man." She sings on a Bob Dylan album called "Desire." So such songs as "Hurricane." Yeah, that's right. That's her in the backing vocals. Um, and uh, and uh, I think she's on a few of the tracks on that album. Toured with him. And just, yeah, she's an amazing, amazing 
musician and great actor. Uh, she also crops up maybe a decade later in Nightmare on Elm Street as the mother of the uh, the main character. I can't think of the main character's name. I'm bad with character names, but I'm good with actors' names. Um, so yeah, no, she is good shout for moral center of the film. She really, she really doesn't do anything wrong. Uh, I think we might have, yeah, by technical knockout, the winner here is Barbara Jean. Um, she, I think, sort of is the kind of idealized version of a country singer uh, in spite of all her, I guess, maybe mental health issues and her sort of um, trauma that she experienced from, I guess, maybe the f- a fire they talk. They, they vaguely allude to this fire that she was in that I guess um, the the private officer uh, saved her father, saved her from her mother, saved her from her, whatever. But yeah, I think that's an acceptable one. That's one good, central, good character in this movie. And unfortunately, she goes through some trials and tribulations throughout it, despite being someone who is morally good. So let's have a listen now to Barbara Jean, Barbara Jean on stage, uh, introducing the uh, the next song in her set at the Grand Ole Opryland. I'm thinking, you know, about the first job I ever really got was when Mama... My grandma, she's the one who clacked her false teeth to the radio all day. She taught my mama how to sing, and mama taught me. One time she took me down because we was going to get a new Frigidaire. She took me down to the Frigidaire store where the man was doing the advertising. His little record was going round and round, and my mama told him that I knew how to sing. He said, she really does. If she learns this tune and comes down and brings it to me, I'll give you all a quarter. So mama and I went home, and then what happened? See, I think, uh, yeah, we went home and I learned both sides of the record in half an hour and we went back there and pranced in real fancy and told him that I'd learned them and he said well let me hear this so I sang him both sides of the record instead of just one so he gave us 50 cents and we went across the street and had us a soda (laughs) ever since then I've been working I don't I think ever since then I've been working and doing my supporting myself anyway And get you some lemonade. Oh, you're fine, darling. Fine. It's the microphone. Give me the mic. I ain't done. Oh, I know, I know. I go, ain't done. Go get some glass of water. Come on. Boss, help her off, all right? You'll come back, okay, darling? Thank you. Okay. Thank all you. All right. Wash the wire. All right, now. Okay. Oh, come on now. Have a heart now. So, just a question for everyone across the board. Do you feel like you are a Barbara Jean or a Connie White? Whose side are you on? Um, I, uh, it, you know, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I mean, I, I, I find it, I find Cop it out. interesting. I'll say I know, <laughs> I, I find it interesting. Her demise is such is such a prescient thing. I mean, uh, we we could talk for hours about kind of the the layers of that or whatever. But the film was shown to Barbara Streisand uh, maybe before its release, or maybe she went to an early screening of it, and she cursed. Robert Altman said, you have put, committed to tape my worst fear every night I get up in front of 2,000 people, whatever, and it, it literally just takes one of them to to, to, to sneak in a gun and, and, and do what your evil character does, and, and, and that haunts me every single night when I stand on stage. So there is, there, there is um, obviously, I mean, such a, a horrible history since this movie and, and beforehand, of 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 gun violence in public spaces and you know we don't need to get into that really but um it is a, a truly traumatic i think 
demise that she experiences and um I don't know if if uh, if that is answering your question. I'm not really answering it, but uh, yeah, no, can I'd say I'm 100% Connie White. Can I, I, mean, the... I, mean, I feel like I'm a Connie White. Well, well, can I be the dickhead who who answers your question with a question, uh, Norma? Can I can I ask you, like, I mean, what do you think that both characters illustrate, particularly with regards to how it goes down for poor Barbara Jean in the end? Like, what is Altman saying here? I like, I guess for Barbara Jean and why she is the sort of like why we would say she is the moral centerpiece of the film is that she does encapsulate the sort of innocent Southern Belle, but also kind of general innocent American audience, maybe. Um, and that that's how you can be broken down by things like and stuff like that as well. It's kind of tricky because also I guess Connie White doesn't feature in it massively. She mainly comes out and sings her songs and is seen as like the kind of sworn rival. Like literally she's in a red dress while Barbara Jean is in a white dress as this sort of like angel devil type thing and that maybe there's a new dawn of country singer and maybe a new type of America that is coming to the fore. So I guess that, uh, yeah, I don't know. That kind of complex. Yeah, even her being blonde, I think, as well, means something as well, like blonde versus brunette, who just kind of like whatever. Played by the great Karen Black as well, of course. It's a hell of a character. Yeah, um, I kind of feel like that that the one of the things and the kind of scouting things that Altman's trying to say with the Barbara Jean character is like it kind of really, really, you know, it still resonates now. You look at how like pop stars are treated and like even in that scene we played with... um, where she has her breakdown at, at, at Opryland. It's like, it's really, really hard to watch. And like, even when she's telling the story, she's like telling the story about being a kid. And then she's been like, I've been working every, every day since. And like, you know, this movie opens with her collapsing, almost like in a JFK style assassination. And then eventually kind of loops back around to it at the end. You know, she's clearly ill. She's in a hospital. Um, but they take her out of the hospital and they wheel her out to Opryland. And, you know, she has a breakdown there again. And then they wheel her out the next day to the Parthenon um, to be assassinated. And when you kind of look at how pop stars are treated, um, this seems to like resonate and it's not something that's been fixed. I I think that is very interesting. And I guess maybe one of the culminations of the movie is the uh, character uh, who goes by the name of Albuquerque, who we spoke about performing at the, the, like the NASCAR rally or whatever. So she is waiting in queue, waiting, like, you know, she's, like, lying on the stage as almost if to not be seen, and you've got Suleen Gay, you know, waiting side stage with bated breath, with her, you know, in her, in her fineries, having had to sell her soul to to get this far, and as soon as this assassin comes out of the crowd and, and, and strikes down the, the late great Barbara Jean, she, you know, Suleen Gay doesn't stand forward, she's petrified, she's standing, you know, with her back against one of the columns, everyone else is leaving, uh, you know, Henry Gibson's character is covered in blood and he's he screams to the crowd, and this is something I didn't really realise until one of the rewatches that he says, this isn't Dallas, this is Nashville. Yeah, yeah. I never really realised that he's referring to the JFK assassination there, I always just thought he meant... Can I just this say isn't, this isn't somewhere else? This is here. He but, is he is outstanding in that scene because he's selling shock. He's been shot in the arm, and they're clearly trying to usher him off stage. Because but he's got the microphone. And yeah, when he's like, you know, when he's like, this isn't Dallas. He's like, they're, they're not going to stop us. It was like this amazing just combination of that, and I thought he sold that incredibly well. Brilliant, brilliant yeah. scene. But then 
we have Albuquerque finally gets her opportunity to grab the microphone under the most, you know, un- unfair or like this isn't how it's supposed to happen. But there is a weird message that I'm trying to, you know, intellectualize in my head is Robert Altman trying to sell us this story that you can strike down one piece of pop culture, uh, you know, ephemera. But there's always something, there's always someone shell-shocked or otherwise waiting to just come in and and uh, and, and pick up the microphone, literally pick up the microphone and uh, and sing this. Try to break me every song, it don't work. Tax relief may never come, it don't work me because Come on, I need you. Come on. My spirit's high. They can't be. You may say I ain't free. It don't worry me. Oh, it don't worry me. It don't worry me. You may say I ain't free. It don't. Yeah, no, Tappy, I mean, like, I think it is hard to sum up. I think ultimately that that's very much like a star is born and fickle public. A woman has just been fucking shot dead. But like, we're still going to celebrate this new star because that's how the industry works. It, it it grinds people up and it spits them out. I think the thing that struck me the most was with the character Barbara Jean. And it should be said that Ronnie Blakely's performance is incredible. I, I don't think there's a bad performance in this film. I think everyone is perfectly slotted into what they are. Everyone understood what they were making somehow. Um, So I think the fact that at the start of the film... She's there and there's fans in the airport and she notices them and she's like, oh, are they there for me? And they're like, yeah. And she's like, oh, well, I want to go see them. And you don't get a sequence with her where she's like revealed to be this like actually like cynical, caustic person. She loves her fans. She loves she's music. She's jealous of Connie White, I guess. Maybe that's well, the probably probably thing. Not, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe the mask slips a little bit. But I think for the most part, she is kind of what she's presented to be. She seems like a nice person who, as Higgs kind of alludes to, has probably been like, you know work to the bone exactly yeah which is his own kind of problem and then like her her reward for everything is to be murdered and like for me like the biggest thing about the uh, i think one of the smartest plays of this thing is that like we never find out why we never find out why kenny does what he does and you don't need to it's pointless it's a pointless act of violence and the fact that like it ends then with that kind of song and like albuquerque picking up the flowers doing this amazing performance I thought was was spellbinding and really sharp, really well judged, and again, unfortunately, sadly relevant for for today as well. You think of like you know something like the Ariana Grande incident in Manchester, and these things just don't stop, unfortunately. And, and the band plays on. Um, I should note before we wrap up, um, I was asked to not put my star rating on Letterboxd by David Higgins. He wants to predict what I uh, what I will be awarding this film, so. Drum roll, well, please. I I wrote it down so because I think I might have I might have well, changed it having, having heard what you've said about the movie. Well, but... it was evolving in my head. So Higgs has written down three stars. Terrible looking stars, by the way. They're very strange. Uh, I I realized as I was trying to draw a star that I cannot, in fact, draw a star. Okay, so you're th- you you think three stars, Norma? What do you think I'm going with? Um, I don't know. You're such a harsh man. 
Cheers. Um, I would say 3.5. And David Tapley. I'm going to say you're going to give it five stars because if you don't, you're wrong. Okay, well, listen. Uh, I think coming away from yesterday, if I, if I had been allowed and permitted to put the stars up on Letterboxd per Higgs, uh, I would have given it four stars. After this conversation and thinking about it more, I'm giving it 4.5 out of 5. I think it's excellent. It's like it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And it overwhelmed me. And I knew it was going to be draining. And I knew it was going to be tough. And I knew it was going to be a commitment. And it is all those things. But I do think it's a special film. It's a 5 for you, I assume, Tapley, yes? Big time, yes. Uh, five, 5 the first time I saw it. And it's only gotten better on rewatch, I have to say. It's one of those films that there's things I didn't pick up on, characters maybe I got to focus a little more on this time round uh, on the rewatch. I actually watched it kind of, uh, I watched it multiple times, watched it with the subtitles on. Uh, a very rewarding watch with the subtitles on. There's some there's some lines that I picked up on and then when I watched it uh, the second time without subtitles, I like tried to hear, like there's a point when Judy Christie comes into the, you know, her cameo like the Elliot Gould cameo uh, and one of the things that pops up on the subtitles is that someone goes is, is she in Dr. Zhivago and when I watched it back I just couldn't hear the person saying that so in my head I was like there's probably loads of things that are in the script or in the subtitles that are just so muffled or just so hidden that they might actually kind of be important or you know maybe the the importance of it is that you're not supposed to hear it or I don't know this this is a film that it means so much to me because I love realism i love like i'm saying the sort of construction of films this construction of art in general and this kind of shows it to me very clearly even though it's not as self-referential maybe as as something like mulholland drive or, or sunset boulevard or whatever but um yeah i think it's a film that rewards rewatching, and i'll settle for nine nine out of ten dave 4.5 whatever you want to call it because uh we could re- we could round that we could round that up on a rewatch who knows but uh yeah i, I think it's a Fabulous motion picture, and this will not be the last time I watch it for sure. I'm uh, I'm with you on it. It's a I think it's like a nine out of ten for me. Normally, I just go ten out of ten to be like this is one of my favorite favorite films, and I absolutely love it. And I kind of feel the next time I come back to it that I I will upgrade it to the the gleaming five stars, uh, the ten out of ten. I never got to answer whether I would consider myself Connie White or Barbara Jean. I also think that Julie Christie doesn't look like she can brush her own hair, so I will be Connie White. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's a joke. No, I was going to say, you can have a third no, no option. Shade, no shade of Julie Christie yeah. here. You can have a third option of being a Mary or, an, or actually an Opal, maybe? No one wants to be Opal. Nobody wants to be Opal. Please don't. Jesus um, Christ. So we mentioned at the top of the Blood. show that this movie uh, was nominated for some Oscars. Uh, only one. One, which was Key Guardian winning for oh, I'm, I'm Easy, sorry, but... hang on one second. Uh, Norma, can I get your star rating on this? Oh, sorry. Cause, cause oh, oh it's five stars. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. because again, I, well, I still... absolutely loved it. It caught me so by surprise because I just, I didn't read up anything about it. So I was just thrown into this mess. I just thought it was absolutely incredible. I do really like Robert Altman's work anyway, so I'm predisposed to liking it and enjoying it and understanding the kind of beast that it is um i can't wait to give it a rewatch i'll probably give it a little while and but yeah like tappy was saying i i do enjoy rewatching his films and picking up on bits of dialogue that weren't there before or even just like background moments that will because there's quite a lot on screen um and there's so many characters so yeah i can't wait to go back and watch and sort of 
living it a little bit more. And I can't wait to see it pop up on your letterbox when you finally join. Anyway, Higgs, <laughs> Oscar me. Yeah, so we've all given this pretty much the, the five-star treatment. Uh, it didn't receive the five-star treatment from uh, the Academy, though. It was up in five categories for Best Picture, Best Director. Um, two, uh, Ronnie Blakely and Lily Tomlin were nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Both of their first movie roles, which is absolutely remarkable. And as mentioned, Keith Garradine won for I'm Easy and Best Song. The Best Picture race this year is ridiculous. Um, so you have Nashville, you have Jaws, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, and the winner, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, Altman was also up for Best Director against Cindy Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon. Stanley Kubrick, Federico Fellini for Amarcord. Steven Spielberg snubbed. There's a great, there's a great line in um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls. How like Spielberg was so confident that he was going to get nominated that he hired a film crew to come and like you know when they were giving out the reactions and he was just like really I lost to Fellini. <laughs> That's like uh, but, Henry Gibson's character when he's like we've got someone in the crowd tonight and he's like preparing to stand up and it's and like the, Connie Wise. It's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful bit. He does. He plays that so well. Um, yeah, so uh, One Flew Over the Cook's Nest, uh, Milos Forman won for Best Director. That kind of did the clean sweep that year. It's interesting to note that Louise Fletcher uh, won for playing uh, Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cook's Nest. She was originally the Linnea character. Um, so Linnea, uh, played by Lily Tomlin, her, uh, both her uh, children are deaf and Louise Fletcher's parents are deaf. So like that was like something that she brought to the role. Not a great look for Robert Altman. Um, I was very impressed by Craig pulling out a back issue of Q Magazine the other day on an O Encore, so I will now take out uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls. I have the for same copy at home. Shitty, shitty behaviour by Robert Altman at uh, the Academy Awards. So um, Louise Fletcher would kind of say that she was given the role and then one day she just found out that they'd cast Lily Tomlin instead of her. Altman would say that she dropped out of the role. But either way... Um, what Altman does here is pretty, pretty shitty. Uh, so this is at the Academy Awards. Uh, and Louise Fletcher says this. The worst thing Bob did at the Academy Awards when I won, it was the bicentennial. We all went out on stage and sang America the Beautiful. And I thanked my parents in sign language. I looked down and there in one of the front rows was Bob. His face was distorted into a grimace. He was mimicking her signing movements, his hands dancing about as if they had a life of their own. He was making fun of Fletcher, signing to her deaf parents. She tried to put on her best face. I can't believe that Bob meant it in that malicious way. I think he meant it as a kind of joke, but I thought it was incredibly ironic with Nashville and then what happened that night and then to have Bob put this tag on it. Right, I'm, not, on, Altman. I'm knocking it down to a three star. So that's where I'm at. Cancelling this film. Yes, well, uh, <laughs> shitty people do shitty things from time to time, but uh, they, great movies are made, and you know, yeah, what an uh, absolutely incredible Academy Award list. They really don't make them like they used to do, they Dave Higgins. Um, and don't. so, with that, shall we wrap up? I fear that this episode won't go over the actual runtime of Nashville like I had originally intended. <laughs> uh, <I laughs> It'll come pretty close. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll get there. I, I, can we pad it out with some more songs? <laughs> Sorry, can I just say that like there was a thing where so in our running order, um, what I, I've been put I was oh putting my god, off, Dave was literally complaining about how long the episode was going to be. I'm not complaining. I'm talking just, more. I, I'll keep it quick. I'm just saying that like 
I was putting off watching this film for a while and one of the reasons was because it's 160 minutes long and there was a moment where I looked in the running order and uh, Velvet Goldmine was the previous film that we did so that was in like the bottom section and it was like Velvet Goldmine brackets how long it is that's what we usually do but it said Velvet Nashville so I think Higgs was just like having fun and it said brackets 120 minutes and I went 120 minutes man I thought Nashville was like much longer class stuck it on 160 minutes because it was the previous one I was like great cool here I am let's do it Velvet Goldmine two hour film this is a significantly better film at least I also yeah was furious when I saw that the Rotten Tomatoes rating was still at 58% so I was like I'm changing that I'm going to find out what it actually is so whatever it was 90, 90 odd percent but uh, Dave Hanratty, thank you very much for allowing me to uh, indulge myself in the ability to talk about a film that I love very dearly. Um, possibly my favourite film, definitely up there. And uh, this has been a great birthday present. Uh, I was about to say belated birthday present. Well, it was not belated, but it is belatedly executed birthday present so thank you very much for having me oh man and, it was uh, wonderfully executed more than happy to have you come back anytime and uh, i guess with that in mind the next time on no popcorn we will be taking a visit to this movie rob gordon has a successful business and a dedicated following i used to go to the double door to hear you spin you were unbelievable but when it comes to dating hi hi this is penny hardwood hi caroline he's still searching for the right woman what's your name laura now his search may have ended she does this thing in bed when she can't get to sleep. She kind of half moans and then rubs her feet together an equal number of times. <laughs> but his problems just started. And I like you with Laura. I don't think much of this Ian guy. What Ian guy? You've got to be kidding me. Touchstone Pictures die. presents... How's Ian? He's growing on me. He looks like he could grow on something. High Fidelity Spurred on by my recent rewatch of Gross Point Blank and then my less than enjoyable rewatch or first time watching of Runaway Jury I'm keeping a Cusack We're going to get to High Fidelity a film that people I believe love I don't think I've seen it since it came out in 2000 I want to say I think I read the book and I think I was actually quite disappointed by the film if I recall so I actually haven't revisited it in two decades I'm looking forward to doing so Um I guess we'll keep our thoughts until we get to the episode. That will be our next episode. So for now, I will say thank you so much, Norma. Thank you so much, Higgs. And thank you, David Tapley, a man who was wearing a bolo tie for this duration of the Zoom call as well, it should be noted. Brought the style, brought the hosting panache, and it was wonderful. Uh, what song are we going to play us out with? What have you got we're for gonna, us? We're going to reprise the beautiful It Don't Worry Me, which I believe was written, in, uh, at least in part, by Gary Busey. Is that correct? Gary Busey wrote the um, Bill, Mary and Tom song they perform. Oh, yes, which is criminally not on the soundtrack. One of my favourites. <laughs> yeah, It's very good, yeah. especially watching Mary perform it. Yeah, so cool. But no, we're going to go out to uh, the, the big choir, the big final moment of the movie, it Don't Worry Me. So thank you so much for having me, guys. Uh, I've been David Tabham, Han Tapley. This has been No Popcorn. There will be No Popcorn. Until next time, keep watching the skis. <laughs> I mean, skies.
This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Looking for a way to make online learning a better option for your family? When it comes to virtual learning, experience matters. Tuition-free K-12-powered schools are ready to put over 20 years of experience to work for you, giving your child the personalized learning they deserve without disruptions. With a K-12-powered school, students gain the skills they need to be prepared for their next steps in life, building a better future for each one of us. K-12, education for any one. Learn more at k12.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.